Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Hello, Black Women Amplified family. This is your girl, Monica Wisdom, and I am so excited that you're here with us today. We have a very special guest on the Black Women Amplified, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. Tanya Pinkins is a force of nature. She is a Tony Award-winning actor who approaches the many roles in her dynamic career with truth, honoring each character she embodies. Whether it's her pioneering work in Jelly's Last Jam, her groundbreaking work in Carolina Change, or her most recent return to the New York stage as Lena Younger in the reinvention of the award-winning play Raisin in the Sun. Miss Pinkins adds layers of complexities, giving the audience a more dimensional understanding of these essential women. Her honesty and precision in sharing the pain and frustrations of humanity opens hearts and minds to the experiences of Black people and women. One thing I know for sure, Miss Pinkins is grace, strength, and courage personified. And we are honored to have her here on the Black Women Amplified podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Miss Tanya Pinkins. Good day, Miss Pinkins. How are you? I am divine, Monica. How are you? (laughs) I am very well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and for this opportunity I'm excited to speak with you. I've done a deep dive into Tanya Pinkins' land. And (laughs) because your career is so deep and so vast, and you have played so many great characters, and each thing that I saw and went into was more spectacular than the next. And we'll get into all of that. And because I know we're going to talk about the red pill because you've dived into filmmaking. (laughs) Yes. And I watched the film over the weekend. I just want to know, how does it feel after a seven-year hiatus to return back to the New York stage? It was hard. (laughs) It was so hard. Like, you know, the muscles of that, that is a very muscular thing, doing a show six days a week. And literally... The, and I kept, I thought, I, I don't, I don't know if I have it in me. And it was literally the day I was like, oh my God, I got it back. I got the stamina. My mind can think of other things that they announced that we were going to be closing. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm what? just getting my, getting my groove on. Yes. <laughs> this is definitely a story that continues to be told and it needs to be told again and again, because it's such a contemporary story. Raisin in the Sun is a story about a Black family trying to do what they need to do. And who, especially in this time, is not trying to do what they need to do mm, yeah. to make it. And so what drew you to this rendition of Raisin in the Sun? Well, Robert O'Hara. 
I love, 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 love slave play. I know a lot of black women detested it, detested it. And I'm going to say something controversial as I'm wont to do. I really think that black women detested slave play and the black woman's part in it because it was a reflection of their own relationships with men who were unworthy of them. And frankly, as a black woman, it's hard to find men who are worthy of us. (laughs) So they didn't like seeing that on the stage. Can you say that again? (laughs) As black women, we are so amazing. It is difficult to find anyone who is worthy of us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, seeing it up on a stage where this black woman is with a man who is just so unworthy of her. I think they just hated it because it was too close to home. What are the unique elements of this production of Raisin in the Sun? Raisin in the Sun was done in 1959. I don't know if you happen to see the essay I just wrote. Did you? Yes. Okay. So what's unique about it is that instead of the happy grab the plant to take to the next house, there's a coda, a visual coda on the production that gives you what the Hansberries actually faced when they got there. I mean, you're not going to get to see it this week, right? So I'll just tell you that we, the apartment leaves and the new beautiful yellow house comes down and the little Travis comes out the front door and hear the birds singing. And then nigger is splashed across the front of the house. So that's probably the biggest change. Other changes are I don't take the plant. If if you're into the sort of specifics of why that's a choice I made, one, it's a house plant. <laughs> if I put it in a garden, it's gonna die. Hasn't ever been outside. Two, another change in the play, the ghost of Big Walter, who is dead, is in the house all the time for Lena. She is still grieving, she still sees him, he still talks to her. And so I leave the plant with him because in my mind he's bound by this place. You know, we had these dreams to go somewhere else, but he doesn't get to go with us. So the plant is left to the house, to him, whoever comes. The last monologue of Walter, where he's doing his cooning thing that he's going to do for the white man, instead of that being done for the, the women in the family, and particularly the way we are doing this production where we're overlapping lines, Uh, the way Black people actually talk to each other instead of, you know, the way theater is, you talk and then I talk and then you talk and then I talk. We are overlapping the way you come in when when the thought comes. That long monologue, I'm guessing he did not ever say this, but in the style of how we're playing this play, none of us would ever allow Walter Lee to talk that long and so degradingly. And so when that scene is done, it is done he breaks the fourth wall and he delivers it to the audience. So he's literally cooning for the audience. And we are all looking out at the audience. And he's saying, those people out there where you want us to live, they're willing to pay us not to move there. And I'm going to take that money and they won't have, yeah, you won't have to live next to no bunch of stinking dirty niggas. We're not going to come and dirty up your house. So it's so powerful to actually like make the audience the people where they're moving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there was a, a theater educator, a white man who came and he was at a talk back with me and he came up afterwards and we got to have a conversation. He talked about how, you know, that monologue is the the Hamlet of our time. And everybody knows that monologue and how he hated it so hard with the fourth wall being broken. He said, I hated it. And he said, I hated it so hard 
that I had to look at myself and go, what, what's this about? This is yours. And he was like, you made me, instead of me being able to observe it, I had to hold it. I had to be a part of it. And he said, I'm going to be unpacking this for a long time to come. So Walter Lee is normally just played as some charismatic, charming, handsome movie star guy who just, we just ignore how sexist and misogynistic and what a drunk he is. There's like only one scene in the play where he's not drunk. And that is when he wakes up in the morning. Mm. (laughs) Every other scene, he's drunk. His kid walks in and goes, you're drunk, daddy? Okay, she wrote a drunk. That is something that previous productions have chosen to overlook. They've chosen to overlook all the sexism, the misogyny of him, because, you know, that is misogynoir. You know, he gets to talk that way. And, oh, that's just funny the way he talks to these women. We don't do that here. Francois, who is brilliant and handsome and charismatic and all of that, leans into the misogyny and the drunkenness. And he does it brilliantly because for some people, he's still just as charming as ever. And other people for the first time see, oh man, this man is a dick. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you get to see past the sparkle mm-hmm. and the way he's able to bring the ladies in. You get to see who he really is and what the r- women really have to deal with. Exactly. <laughs> that is what we are doing. <laughs> It's like you get to see what we deal with when the door is closed. Yes. And the suit is on the the couch. (laughs) That is what Robert O'Hara told me we were going to do. He said, why is a play by a queer Black woman with four Black women in it known as a play about a Black man's dreams? Mm. What about the women's dreams? Right. So when you reimagined Lena, is that what you brought to her character? Or you're bringing to her character, I should say. I think what, you know, this is is my specific history. Specifically, Mm -hmm. my family migrated up from Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas to Chicago, worked those steel mills, were domestics in white families. I knew five generations on both sides of my family. I know these women intimately. And the ways I had seen it played before, and I think that that's because it was always about the man and the women were just satellites. Mm-hmm. He was the son and they were satellites of him. The women were always a trope of, you know, one dimension. Each of them was playing a trope that he had to play off of. You know, the long suffering, nagging wife, the wannabe bourgeoisie daughter and the mean emasculating mother. And uh, I don't know any of those people. I don't, I don't know any black women like that, quite frankly. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know those women. And the actresses I'm playing with aren't that. And so, you know, Robert was like, this is the women's play. And if you look at the text, Walter Lee doesn't start or end any scenes. The women do. And he just always is coming in and interrupting their shit. <laughs> That's the play she wrote. And so we take the time with the women and what they're going through. And most of the time, we're not even looking at him. He's coming in and setting off fireworks. And we are looking at each other and trying to figure out whatever we were talking about before. It doesn't stop just because he's acting a fool in the middle of the living room. And that's as real as it gets. (laughs) (laughs) Because that is the truth. And so as as his mother, I don't feel sorry for him. I know my son is foolish. Right. I know my son has some pipe dreams. Okay, so there is nothing tragic to me about him. He's just foolish. He needs to grow the fuck up. Also, like my grandmother's, one of my grandmothers worked on the Sunbeam line. She used to buy herself a new Cadillac every damn year. She gave 
card party. She was a fisherwoman. She grew roses. She raised dogs. They, she could party, wore the finest clothes. And so we talked about like, you know, always mama, she's all raggedy and she wears a robe and she's the downtrodden. I'm like, if a black woman got to go talk to some white people and ask for something, she gets her best. We always have our finest stuff. We don't go out asking the white people for nothing and not being our spick and span best. Mm-hmm. Not know, a so hair that, out of place. Not a hair, not out, of a place. hair out of place. Got the gloves, got the <laughs> lipstick. You know, I'm from Chicago. We're steppers. We put a little stepping moment in there. Mama, you know, talking about that $10,000. We got a little stepping moment in there. (laughs) This woman is alive and lively. She's still grieving, but this $10,000 can change her life. This is her retirement. She going to put her daughter through school with a third of it. She going to get a down payment on the house. That's for the family. And that other $3,000, that's something she don't have to work for the rest of her life. But she says to Walter, here, you pay the bills from now on. And Walter takes all the damn money, going to throw everybody under the bus. And that so many men have thought that that was what the play was. Mama saying, here, take the money and have your chance and live your dream. She don't never say that. Mm. <laughs> she says, be the head of this house. Oh, put this in a checking account. And then you write the checks. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you take care of me. We going to pretend you the man of the house. Cause that would be that would be some pretend, cause you didn't earn that money. I am over here crying, laughing, because this is so real. It is the woman who really, you know, they always say the man is the head of the household, but the woman is the net, and we have a way of letting them feel like they're running it, but the truth of the matter is they're not. <laughs> right. I mean, I literally had a man I was dating once. Asked me, I took him somewhere and he was like, could you just give me the money and I pay the bill? I said, no, we're not going to pretend you paying for this meal. I'm paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I brought you because I wanted to sit here with you. Just like I tell women, when a man takes you to an expensive restaurant, he's not trying to impress you. That's how he eats. Right. <laughs> right. It ain't about right. you at all. <laughs> now, I did read your essay. And like I said, it's a work of art. I, I wish you would turn it into a monologue or a one woman play. I don't know, but it's brilliant. And it's entitled A Letter to Jesse Green of the New York Times. I was like, you could have interchanged many names and many projects and this would have worked. For people who have not read it yet, and I believe everybody should read it, it's on your Twitter page, which is where I saw it. What sparked this response? Well, the way the show is, you get a contractual run and then they have like a possible extension. And then because I played that theater before, I know that as long as the ticket sales are good, they will keep extending. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's kind of always the hope for people when they do anything off Broadway. Everybody wants to move to Broadway. I think there was certainly talk of that when we first came here. So there was a, a date certain of closing because they had to pay us through that date. Cause that's the contract we signed. And then there was another month that they had as a possibility, because if it doesn't go to Broadway, we'd still have this month that we can do. And as I said, that day that I finally got my groove and I was like, okay, I can do this show. I know what the show is. I know it in my body. I know how to not have to sleep all day and then do a show. Cause the first few weeks I was sleeping all day and then going <laughs> to do the show. It took everything I had. Mm-hmm. And I, I got word that we were closing early. 
for the world, that's an extension. But for us, knowing contract what the contract said, it's an early close. Okay. And I said, oh, we must have gotten a bad review in the New York Times. And so I decided to go and read the New York Times review. And look, I've gotten plenty of bad reviews in my life. And if it had just been a bad review and that I felt that it, you know, because I knew we were doing something that was so rooted in truth that it was going to divide people. So completely expected that. I'd say that maybe more than half of my friends who come see the show don't like it at all. People like literally we have our friends kind of blank us. They pretend they don't see us or know us when we come out like they don't like it. Mm. And that's fine. So. I chosen to not read the reviews because I was like, you know, half the people are going to love it. Half the people are going to hate it. That's fine. You don't need to read this. It was done. But I never thought that we would close early because we're getting full houses every night. And there are people who are devastated and sitting there crying, much like Carolina Change, where it was moving people. When I read that review, I was like, what? I don't even know what play you saw. What are you reviewing? You reviewing something from your mind. But this not even what we did. You know, as I said, that's not even what the set looked like. Mm. So I'm kind of, I have this, I'd say one of my, I don't even know what you'd call it, defense mechanism, pet peeve, but I'm a dog with a bone kind of about certain kinds of details. Mm -hmm. And I have to sometimes catch myself because I can become very combative over details. And I've come to go, you know, the relationship is more important Mm -hmm. than you being right about them saying that wrong. But particularly with white people, It matters because they have the ability to create narratives that become reality or reality that people are engaged in. And so I just found that every day I couldn't stop thinking about that review. And it was like every moment that I wasn't on stage, my mind was coming back with the with the comebacks and the comebacks and the comebacks. And I just and one morning I got up and I sat on the toilet and I wrote 20 pages handwritten. (laughs) And I was like. Oh, I got it. And every time I was off stage, some more would come to me. And literally, that is about half of what I wanted to say. I was just like, you got to you got to get it out before the show closes. And it's got to be that people can, you know, read it because and I was like, so I had to come up with what are the subheadings. So if someone only wants to jump to a subheading and only read that. So it took me what I think two weeks to get it done. I could tell it was carefully crafted and you were serious. <laughs> and you wanted to be very clear. You know how your grandmother speaks to you. I want to be very clear in what I'm saying to you. <laughs> so yes. there's no speculation. <laughs> it was brilliant. I sent it to my girlfriends. They were like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it was, like I said, you could interchange people and situations and it fit because it was such a description of the pain of a Black woman and our constant defense of ourselves and our work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And no matter what we do, we're always defending ourselves and trying to prove our worth and our value. And it was like you said, I'm done. And to people who are not, can't hold a candle to us. Mm, That part. (laughs) (laughs) That part. But it was, I read it a couple of times because I just had to absorb what you said because it really applies to every Black woman's life. Yes. No matter what field you're in, there's always some white man or white person telling you who you are. Mm -hmm. 
And we're constantly trying to say, that's not who we are. And now I'm just going to send people this essay. Just read this. <laughs> <laughs> just read this. Because I'm tired of defending myself. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. And that's the point we are in our society. I am who I am. And ooh, the red pill. We'll get to that in one second. But I want to dig into your 2004 performance at the Tony Awards. Oh, my God. <laughs> I saw Carolina change as a younger person, but hearing it now in my fifties is a whole nother animal. And the, the song, it was just like, I get it now. Mm. You know, parts of ourselves, we have to bury and dampen just to survive because we have to go leave our houses, go out into the world with this guard on just to survive. Slam that iron down on my heart, my set, my soul. Yes. And the last line especially hit home for me. It said, don't let my sorrow make evil of me. Mm. That's it. But how? I mean, the whole performance was stunning and powerful and alive. But how? How do we not allow this world to turn us bitter and sorrow and angry? I think most of us do. I think most of us do, because if we didn't, we'd have killed a whole bunch of people a long time ago. Because <laughs> we up in their houses, we got their children in our care. So I think that we do. I think that we are successful in that. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is who we are. I think that are deeply divine people and that the earth and the the divine spirit that made everything. I like to use the term nether, which it's the the Kush Kemite in term for it. I think that 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 infusion is in us, and I think that that is a recognition of the impermanence of this world, mm-hmm. and a knowledge that uh, we go on beyond this incarnation, and that whatever is coming to us is a lesson. It's a teaching. It's preparing us for the next thing. And that next thing might be in another incarnation. But I think we have a way of being able to bless whatever comes into our life. That's how we turn it into food and music and cooking. And and we can laugh about it and make jokes. Like we turn everything into something beautiful and artful. I agree. And in this generation that's coming up, I see that they have a lot of anger. What would you, how would you say to them to take that anger and transform it into something artful or beautiful? Well, you just would hit that little button there. <laughs> Here's this statement that I found. I think I actually came across a version of it in a Ray Diallo video. He does a lot of videos about finance and world history and stuff like that. But uh, it's, it is this tough times make strong people. Strong people make good times. Good times make weak people and weak people make tough times. So I feel like we are in some tough times. We're going to go into some tougher times. And it's because, and I'm counting myself in it. I have four children who, to hear them talk, I'm just the worst mother ever. And they have had this horrible life and poor them. And and that's why, you know, they leave me with their bills and run up my credit cards and don't speak to me because I was so terrible. 
And so there's a, you know, people who grew up with it being good and they feel entitled to that goodness. And so now they're taking us into some tough times, but the next generation that come through them tough times, they're going to make something fabulous. Mm-hmm. I don't know that this generation can do it. I don't know that I, in hindsight, when I look back, like I remember coming up in my twenties and stuff, and I had so much resentment for all the beatings I took and how, you know, rough it was. Okay. Now I look back and I go, oh, that's why people scared of me. Cause what I survived, what surviving my mother was like, anybody that came to my life was like, what you going to do that? I ain't already lived through. <laughs> okay. Right. That like, it's not like I wouldn't have wished it on anybody, mm-hmm. but it's why I was forged in fire. Mm-hmm. And I spared my children all of that. And what they have gone through and they think is bad. They don't know what bad is, mm-hmm. but they think it was. I've told them all the time. If you get a choice between the easy version and the tough version, always choose the tough version because it's going to prepare you for those times when you don't have a choice. Mm. Yes, 100%. And because our generation forged from Jim Crow, we had to make it up and make it happen. <laughs> exactly. Nothing was given to us. Nothing. <laughs> we didn't have scholarship programs for college and we didn't have inheritance. And I have nobody I, I even knew to go borrow nothing from. If I was in trouble and I didn't have, well, I wasn't going to have. And I just was going to not have until I could figure out how to get what I needed. And right now I'm 60. I'm like realizing I have to become the thing I think I need. Mm. You know, I know a lot of people I've asked for a lot of help and many of those people have said no, and it's their right to say no. And I'm like, oh, I think they have what I need, what I want. I need to become them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. And you have become a filmmaker to tell your stories. Yes, yes, yes. Because this film, The Red Pill, is something to see. I'm going to tell you, I will never eat bread from somebody. <laughs> I just want to be, to let you know <laughs> that if it's <laughs> at a package, at a store, I'm not eating it. So let's talk. About, oh, thank you for those words of wisdom. I have to give you your flowers really quick. You're amazing. Well, thank you. When I went into a deep dive, I was like, not only as an actress, but just as a human, I'm like, it's like listening to James Baldwin when you speak, because you're so honest in the way that you're able to communicate what you're feeling. I get it. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to like, what is she thinking? What It's very clear. Where did you get that level of communication from? I'm just asking. Because it's it's amazing. I think that I must have come in this way mm-hmm. because I've been this way since I was a small child. I questioned the people around me from the very early age. And I was always observing people's behavior and the difference between their behavior and their words. Mm-hmm. And so even when I was in elementary school, I remember, you know, I was always the kid that was going to get beat up or something. I could talk my way out. The dozens came in handy for me because, baby, I had to talk myself out of many an ass whooping (laughs) because I would just be sitting and listening, you know, and I'd be like, well, if you're talking about them when they walk away, well, I guess when I walk away, you're going to be talking about me. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm thinking about that at nine and (laughs) ten. 
<laughs> and I'm just sitting and listening and just observing how if people didn't tell the truth, it just made so much confusion happen. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, which became a Broadway show called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night. And it's about a little autistic boy. And he just doesn't understand why people ever lie because he's like, then how are you going to remember what you said? And all the things, the details that go along with it, like, that's just too much work. <laughs> but, you know, people who are practice liars, they just tell a new lie. They just keep making up new lies. They don't try to go back and make it make any intrinsic sense. They just keep telling lies and count on people to not remember. Mm-hmm. I'm that person who remembers. <laughs> like I go pull up something Jesse said, like, Jesse, you like an angry conversation to get started. Well, here, here's one for you. <laughs> and then you said. <laughs> <laughs> Your brain is amazing. And it comes through in this movie, The Red Pill. Because as I'm watching it, I'm like, why does she keep showing her T-shirt? Like, just why does the camera keep panning this lady's T-shirt? But by the time I got to the end, I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) How did you conceive this movie? And what was behind your decision to make The Red Pill? I've been wanting to make movies and be a director for a long time. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people and asked many of them to give me an opportunity. People who had the power to just literally give me an opportunity. And none of them did. And then it isn't, some of them did just say no. Most of them just ghosted me. Mm. And I remember seeing an Ava DuVernay thing saying, you know, I didn't go to film school. I didn't do this. I just decided, you know, nobody's going to give it to me. I'm going to give it to myself. And interestingly, she's one of the people who said no to me, but I saw that video and I said, okay, then I got to do what Ava did. I got to give it to myself. Mm. And I'm so grateful for it because I realized that had any of those people given me that opportunity, I wouldn't have made my own film. I wouldn't be a feature filmmaker. I wouldn't know everything about how it gets done. I would be working for other people. Mm -hmm. So uh, it came largely out of the fact that I feel like I'm kind of just this really curious, open person. So I'm listening to a lot of things without judgment and I take it in. And 2016, it was just so clear to me from all the things I was hearing that 45 was going to win. Being a woman in America, knowing a little bit of history, I just truly believe women are the most hated beings in America on the planet. We're more hated than Black people. And there was just no way a woman could win, period. (laughs) And as we jokingly say, she couldn't beat a black man. There was no, she was going to beat a white one. I could see that in this movie because every time your character said something, nobody paid attention. Right. And you were telling them like throughout the movie, what was about to happen? Mm-hmm. Like, no, this is some. we need to go. No, it's fine. And it's fine. Everything was, no, you're just, and there was always a reasoning for you being uncomfortable. It was on you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, well, this isn't real life. (laughs) Yeah. And I I felt that a lot of black women would understand that. You know, there were some black women who've seen the movie and like, oh my God, you traumatized me. The violence against black women. I'm like, violence against black women is real. Like that ain't violence against you. That's like just pointing out to the rest of the world. Our labor is stolen from us violently. That's the first image of the movie. Mm hmm. When I first heard about this movie was you were on the Karen Hunter show Mm. and she talked about that first scene. I was like, I'm not watching that. And then when this opportunity came up and I saw it, I was like, oh, 
it wasn't, it was rough, but it wasn't to the extreme of what I thought it would be. And it was definitely not as rough as many horror movies that I've seen. So, and I understood the symbolism of it. And the idea that really struck me throughout the whole film was this illusion of this peaceful own people and what they're really doing behind the scenes. And I thought that was brilliant for you to bring that aspect out. It was very well illustrated. Mm, Thank you. It was very well illustrated because by the time you got to the end, I don't want to tell the movie. (laughs) I'll just say when something switched position, I fell out laughing. I was like, so glad you got the laugh. Laying in my bed and I fell out laughing because that was hilarious. And it was so hilarious. Like a funny reality, hilarious. Yes, was, that's what I was. What I was going for. It was when I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> you come up with that. That is genius. Thank you. I'm glad you got it. <laughs> because the women definitely were not being namaste-ish. <laughs> 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 but this film, you have showed it all over the world, and. It has been given awards. Tell me about your film festival experience. Well, I didn't get to do it in person because it was COVID. I got to go to one festival and get my award in person. And that was a directing award at the Show Film Festival in Los Angeles. Everything else was online. The film's been translated into Russian, into Catalonian, into Greek, into Spanish. I knew the film would resonate outside of the world because I know that people outside of America see America far more truthfully than Americans see see it themselves. So I always knew the people outside America would get it. Mm -hmm. And it was just the best creative experience of my life. And I'm trying to figure out how to get to do it again and do it easier. Because if you see from the credits, I did about 100 jobs. Yes. I, I paid for it. I had to do all the jobs that I couldn't afford to pay wonderful people to do. Yes. It was like you just cut and paste your name into the credits. Because <laughs> I had to do it because it, it was my baby and I had to get it born. <laughs> and you you birthed it and you midwiped it and you doctored mm-hmm. it. You did all the things. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it really blew my mind. Because I'm, I, and I'll be honest, I'm not a fan of the horror genre, but I love this new get out where they're just talking about the horrors of our lives. Yes. It's like reality. Yes. This story could have been put in many genres, but the fact that it's in horror, it talks about our reality. Yes. It's the simplest way to put it. And one of the things that was, you know, like when I would get certain notes back from white people, you know, there's the formula for the jump scares and the this and the that. And I was like, yeah, that's not what's scary for us. Mm -hmm. The violence is inevitable. We're scared when it's good because we know y'all going to fuck that shit up any second now. Like, you know, every time we build a community, any second now, y'all going to come and bomb us or burn it down. So the scary for us is when it's not happening, when it's good, when the violence comes. Okay, we were waiting for that. Now it's over. We're going to get a little peace for a while, you know. So even rhythmically, it has a different rhythm for me than most horror films because I don't think the violence is as much of the horror as the anticipation of the violence that you know is inevitable. Mm -hmm. Because we've seen it before and they don't do anything new. That's right. It's just when, not what. Yep. 
<laughs> yes, and I yep. totally got that in this movie. And uh, and bravo to you for having the courage to have this conversation, not only in America, but around the world, because it's just the truth. Yes. It's the absolute truth. And it's not truth to power. It's just, let me show you the life that we live. Yes. And then maybe you'll understand why we respond to life or you respond to you in the way that we do, because this is our existence daily, not when something big happens. This is like walking out of the door. Like I always tell, and not to get too deep in this, I tell my friends, my white friends, every day I pray that I make it home just to go to the grocery store. Yes. Every day I pray to come home from work safely. And that is a huge burden to carry every day. I want to frolic just like you all do. But I have to find those opportunities with my people and really understand that this is just how life is. So it's not how can I change the world? It's how can I navigate through it? So I say all that to say thank you for your work. Thank you for getting it. I really appreciate that. I mean, I'm doing what I'm doing to communicate. I, you know, don't mind if if it makes someone angry or upsetting. I'm willing to have the conversation. I want to communicate. I want to learn more. If you don't agree, help me understand where you're coming from and what your point of view is. But I'm trying to express mine because there may be somebody else out there who feels they're alone in what they're thinking or that what they're thinking is weird or crazy or wrong. And so I'm like, well, here's mine. You know, I know it's not everybody's, but it's mine. And there must be some other people who share this. Yes, (laughs) I think we all do. (laughs) You definitely have a way of communicating a Black woman's experience in such a profound way that's very clear. I didn't need a thesaurus. with some people. I didn't need a dictionary. It's just very, very clear. This is just how it is, plain and simple. And I do hope, and this is just my personal thing, I do hope you take that essay and make something magic out of it because it's brilliant. Thank you. It is absolutely brilliant. Now, because you are this wise, profound woman, I just wanted to ask some questions about life, about Black girl life. I wanted to know Where do you find time and space to breathe? Oh, I make that. Mm -hmm. One of my grandmothers, my heart grandmother, when she was very, very sick and in a wheelchair and on oxygen and on all kinds of medicines, I brought her to me in New York from Chicago. I took her off all her medicines because as far as I was concerned, she was about to die anyway. Mm -hmm. I took her off all her medicines. I did things that were probably torturous to her. I was in my 20s. I was just thinking I know best. And I was put her on juice fasting and had people coming over massaging her and reflexology and all kinds of stuff. And she lost about 40 pounds in two months. When she left me, she was running me out of my, she was the grandmother I grew up with running me out of my house and telling me this, that, and the other. I felt that she wasn't healthy enough to go home, but you know what? She's a grown woman and it was her life. You know, I was not her mama. And she went home and she died pretty quickly thereafter. And it hurt me to my heart, but I I really had the profound realization that you cannot live anybody's life for them, save their life. And it's disrespectful to even try. And I don't even remember the question that took me to that place. <laughs> well, it was the perfect answer. It was the answer that we're supposed to hear that we 
are not here to fix other people. We're just here to support them and what they do. And that was a beautiful tribute to your grandmother to let her live her life and to do all that you could so that you don't have any guilt as she moves on to the next realm. Oh, I remember what I wanted to say. So all of that, I realized that my life was life. Like my life was what I had. My grandmother never could ask for help. And I said, I'm never going to be a person who won't ask for help. So I always ask. I ask everyone for help. Now, if they don't give it to me, then I just got to go get it for myself. So I ask, I don't ask even with the expectation. Like if someone actually does help me, cherry on top. But I've always put my life before anything else. Am I happy? Am I enjoying myself? Am I comfortable with myself? I always say to people, do what you can live with at three o'clock in the morning when you're all alone and all those advisors and supporters aren't there. Can you live with that decision? That's what has sustained me. You know, people be like, there was one year I lived with one of my children and at the end of two years of living with him, I thought I was going to die. Like, physically debilitated, ended up developing a life-threatening condition. I took six weeks and went to Bali. People were like, how are you going to do that? It's the middle of the pilot season. I was like, you know what? If a pilot came up, I couldn't do it. I need to go take care of myself. I need five hours of massage a day. People tell me in Bali, I can get a massage for eight to $10. I'm going to go have five hours of massage <laughs> for six weeks. And that's really what I do. I'm not sitting around waiting for some opportunity. I am living in gratitude and finding ways to be in gratitude as often as possible, because I truly know that tomorrow is not promised. So I try to live every day so that it's a good day to die. Like, did I, am I complete? Did I say everything I need to do? You know, if I think of somebody, I reach out to them because you don't know when they're going to go either. That's life in a nutshell. And the fact that you asked for help, that's a huge problem for black women because we're the first ones to say, I got it. I got it. Well, you know, I will jump on. I got it. You tell me no. That's like, well, I'm on. You know, I definitely. <laughs> but I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. <laughs> but the asking is a big thing for us. Even executives that have a staff will say, I got it. But you have a whole staff. <laughs> well, you know, I took this wonderful class with a teacher named Kasia Urbaniak at the academy. And it's sort of woman empowerment thing. And she really taught me about uh, the submissive dom thing. And that was having taken her classes, what also allowed me to appreciate slave play. And this is what people don't understand. And it's that way that capitalist, social, you know, settler colonial capitalism takes words and uses them to mean the exact opposite of what they really do mean. Like calling Black people minorities when we're like the global majority on the planet, you know? Mm -hmm. The dom the dom is the servant. So most black women's are doms. We are serving everyone. The submissive has the power. The submissive is completely narcissistically focused on themselves and attracting what they need and want. And the dom serves that. And so learning how to switch between dom energy and sub energy has been a big thing in my life. And to you know, decide when I don't want to be doming for somebody, (laughs) you know, well, I'm not, I'm not here to serve you. Not going to do that. Like if it's choice between my happiness and yours, I'm choosing me. Mm, Wow. It's like when I tell my God's daughters, queens sit down and get served. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
<laughs> we that's, don't do that's a submissive. That's the sub. Oh wow. I never even thought about that. That's submissive. You're gonna have me thinking about that all weekend. That's oh look up Kasha. Her work is very profound. And uh and that's about someone sitting with themselves and going, What feels good to me? Mm, that doesn't feel good. Don't want that. Nope. And only accepting and receiving what feels good. That is so profound because that is the healing that I think we need as black women because we were conditioned and raised to, to serve take others. Yes. To take it. Yes. And to serve others. Oh, oh you just blew my mind. <laughs> you just literally blew my mind. That's incredible. What's the lady's name again? Can you spell it for me? K-A-S-I-A Urbaniak. R-U-R-B-A-N-I-A-K. Kasha Urbaniak. I will definitely be looking her work up. That is a very profound perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, yes. And <laughs> that's amazing. And six weeks in Bali. Yeah, Brent, sign me up for that one. <laughs> you know, it's, you probably spend less money there than you spent in America. Yes. I always tell people traveling abroad is cheaper than going to New York for a week. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people are <laughs> just staying home in your house. So as we close out, I have one final question to ask you. And what is your hope for the future for Black women? Hmm. I believe that the world is evolving towards higher levels of everything. So I think it is automatically going to get better. And I think what I hope for everyone is that we grow in trusting our instinct because it is always right for us, even when it's wrong. If it's wrong and you followed it, you're still building your instinctive, your trust in your instinctive self. And that is the most important thing to do because you got to live with you forever. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I am truly my favorite company. Mm. (laughs) Can you please put that on a (laughs) t-shirt? I am. I really am. I enjoy myself more than I enjoy anybody else in the world. So being alone, being by myself, I am so for it. (laughs) that doesn't mean that sometimes I don't want to be around other people Mm -hmm. but like the pandemic was fabulous to me (laughs) okay (laughs) quietly yes (laughs) well you have been a pleasure and it has been an honor to speak with you thank you so much I will ring your name I was like she needs to be up on the top of the list of all the people Oh, thank you. I appreciate that so much. It's very kind. And how can people find you and know about your latest projects? You know, I'm on all the social medias at Tanya Pinkins on Twitter, Instagram, uh, what other one? LinkedIn. Um, I have a website and I try to keep it up to date. I'm not real good at that, but I do try. And uh, yeah. And everybody, she's all over YouTube. Just Put her name yeah. in the search engine and you will find <laughs> you'll find great interviews, you'll find great performances, and you will get to dive deep into her world like I did, and you will thoroughly enjoy it. Thank you, Miss Pinkins. <laughs> you gotta try the red pill game and see if you could survive the world of red pill. It's on the red pill website. Beautiful. Thank you again, and thank you for joining us on the Black Women Amplified Podcast. Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining.